much for the rich relationship we have through your son, the, the access for which was given to us through your son, Jesus Christ, and which is demonstrated and proven to us through the relationship that we have with your spirit. We thank you, Lord, for opening our minds to things of the spirit through your word, and we ask you, Father, to continue to help us down that path to, for our relationships to be enriched, for our understanding to be enlightened, for our, um, our dedication to you to grow ever stronger, uh, for our sense of self-discipline uh, to become stronger so that we can focus on the things of the spirit rather than the things of the flesh so that we can be more like you and have greater communion with you. As we go into this final class in this series, we ask your blessing on each participant who's here today. Uh, may we all be um, enriched and enlightened through the things that we study in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here is an, here are the takeaway points from one guy's point of view, and you all will have more, and glad to hear those too. So, in regard to spirits, there are two views of the world. There's the spiritual set of glasses we can look at the world through, and there's the physical set of glasses that we can look at the world through. And if we get too focused on the things of the flesh, we could completely miss one complete aspect, the most important aspect of our being, that which Jesus showed us uh, how to focus upon. Jesus showed us how to focus on spirits. He focused on his own spirit and he focused on the spirits of those around him. And those that were around him, even though he had no material gain, nothing, there was nothing, as the prophet said, that uh, would necessarily call our attention to or attract us to him, yet he enriched all of those who were around him. In John chapter, we use John chapters 3 and 4 as examples of how Jesus engaged people in these higher level conversations, including one of, teacher of the Israelites, Nicodemus, and also a, um, a woman, a Samaritan woman at the well. I think there's some interesting points that could be made about the contrast between those two individuals and how both were deeply impacted to look more at their, the spiritual aspect of their life. We are expected to walk in this way, being mindful of the things of the flesh and not of the things of the spirit, Romans chapter 8, verse 5. That's, uh, when I say we're expected to walk this way, if we don't walk this way, Paul told us in the book of Romans that we become enemies of God rather than friends of God. It's that important. We only commune with God in our spirit. John chapter 4, verse 24, that famous passage where Jesus told the Samaritan woman that we, those, the, the, the hour is coming and now is, Jesus said, when uh, those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit. Connecting spirit with spirit. We have a spirit. God is a spirit. We're going to worship God, who is a spirit. We'll worship him in spirit. That's a lot of spirits. Okay. Our spirit longs for a suitable spirit body. We talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, in detail, and we looked at the Greek words there that compare the what we call the soul body with the spirit body, the soma psuchikos with the soma pneumaticos, and it's the spirit body that, that Paul says that we'll get someday 
when that transformation takes place and our spirit, which now really doesn't, is not at home in this physical body, will finally be at home. We talked about spiritual conflict. And we said that to deal effectively with our spiritual enemy, we, we must see him through the eyes of the spirit. And Ephesians chapter 6 is all about putting on a spiritual armor so that we can fight a spiritual battle. Because he says our wrestling is not with flesh and blood, but with angels and principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in high places. Jesus demonstrated power and achieved victory over the evil ones in life and in death. And that battle then was fought in the spirit. We have, as long as we're in this spirit, the spirit is occupying fleshly body, there will be a battle within us. And Romans chapter 7 illustrates for us so well the battle that Paul said was raging inside him. The flesh fighting against the spirit. But... We gain victory in that battle, not by our perfection, because Paul, at the end of all that struggle, says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And his answer his, to this rhetorical question was that redemption comes from Christ. And he will make this point over and over again as he goes on throughout the, the book of Romans, that it's not through our fleshly perfection. It's not through for perfecting, per perfecting our behavior, because guess what? We're never going to get there. What does it have to be through? It has to be through spiritual development. It has to be through changing the way we think about our, our spirit relative to our body. So our relationship with God is through walking in the spirit and through presence of his Holy Spirit in us, in Romans chapter 8, and particularly in verse 9. If you wanted to single verse that you go to, to to show that the Spirit is in us. And if we don't have the Spirit of God in us, we don't belong to Him. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 9. It is pointedly not by our own perfection and rule-keeping. And I would cite the entire book of Romans and the entire book of Galatians in order to, to prove that. Um, the, the Pharisees tried that, and it didn't work well for the Pharisees, and it didn't work well for anybody around the Pharisees. And Jesus spent all of His ministry... Uh, combating this idea that somehow we can reach this perfection that we can somehow attain to a relationship with God through perfection and law keeping. He said, having begun in the spirit, do you think you're going to continue in the flesh? He, that's what he said to the, to the Galatians. No, you started out your walk in a spiritual connection with God, and if you're going to continue it in, in connection with God, it will be in the spirit. So finally, the spirit in us is about relationship. We worship God by his Holy Spirit, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. We are transformed by the Holy Spirit. And I've called as many passages to bear on this as I could possibly think of that would, that would speak directly to this issue. It's, it's not, again, we're not transformed by trying harder. We're not transformed by trying to, with white knuckles, do everything that we can. We're, we're transformed by the Holy Spirit in us because it is... We who work out our salvation with fear and trembling, yes, but it is in the next verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, because it is of God, both to will and to work. Now, this is not Calvinism that I'm teaching here. This is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, that's part of that paradox, as they talked about in, the, in a previous class, uh, Brian and, and uh, Lawrence talked about in a previous class where... 
um, two things can be true at the same time that seem to be in conflict with one another. Yes, we do work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And yes, it is of God in us both to will and to work. Okay, and I think you'll find that message consistent throughout the New Testament if you look at these verses that I put up here. Communion with God is through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 shows us in some ways how communion, communication with God is through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10 and 11 talks about how the Spirit knows the mind of the being. And it's the Spirit who searches the mind of God and who brought that message then to the apostles who revealed it to mankind. And if it's the spirit that knows the mind, then our spirit knows our mind, and God's spirit knows his mind. And when they connect in us, that forms a link of communication between us and God, between our spirit and his spirit. And that's what Romans chapter 8, verse 26 is all about. The spirit communicates for us things that we can't, are not even capable of communicating, things we can't even put into words. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit knows our infirmity, and he is our translator to connect us to God and communicate to God the things that we can't even verbalize. Isn't that a comfort to know? We don't have to know what to say when we pray. Sometimes when we pray, we don't have to say anything, but God gets it. Okay? And finally, then, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We spent quite a bit of time on this. If the Word of God is in us, okay, it's a temple with scrolls. But if the Spirit of God is in us, then it's a temple with a spirit. It's a temple with the presence of God. And that's what we had in the Old Testament. It had the scrolls. Yes, it did. And the scrolls were sacred and they were important. But the presence of God was in the temple. And it was the presence of God that showed that that temple was different from every other building on earth. We are the temple of God. It started out with the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38, when the Spirit of God, the glory of God, overshadowed that tabernacle came into the tabernacle, sat right there above the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat. Solomon's temple, Ezra's renovation of the temple, and Herod's renovation of Ezra, or Herod, Ezra's temple and Herod's renovation of Solomon's temple contained the glory of God. The physical body of Jesus on earth was the temple of God. He was the very seat of the Holy Spirit on earth. John chapter 2, verse 19, verse 19, when Jesus spoke about his body, about him dying and his body being resurrected in three days, he said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. They thought he was blaspheming the temple because they thought he was talking about the physical temple, but no it said, it explains to us later, he was talking about the temple of his body, the place where the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelt among men. Christians, both individually and collectively, are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as a collectivity, we together as a church are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, along about verse 19 through the end of the chapter, we individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit and for that reason we ought to behave in certain ways that are consistent with the way that the, the in order to, to maintain a pure environment for, for the Holy Spirit and finally the glorified church in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3 the church is presented as uh, behold the 
tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them and be their God, and they will be his people. That's a, a phrase that's repeated ever since the book of Deuteronomy. God will dwell with the, them and be their God, and he will be their people throughout the prophets, throughout the New Testament, and now we see it actually coming to fruition in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, as the glorified church becomes the very presence, in the very presence of God, and we become a new heaven and a new earth, a new tabernacle for God, God, God dwelling with us. But right now, here's where we're at. We're at um, a church and people in it being the dwelling place of God on earth. There's no tabernacle for people to go to anymore. There's no temple where people will meet with God. We're it. And that is both um, comforting and terrifying, isn't it? That we are the place where God meets with humankind, replacing both the temple and the tabernacle. And it's through the glorification of whatever it is that we are that God will dwell with us in person and will behold his glory. So, life in the Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit if we walk in the flesh. Just be aware, God's not going to leave you every time you sin, and you've got to form a new relationship with Him again. It's not the revolving door. It's not jumping over the broom handle. It's you have a relationship with God. He's your Father, and He'll be with you. Unless you so offend Him that He decides He's leaving, and He's not, not coming back until you change. But while, we're, while we have the Holy Spirit in, him, in us, we can grieve him if we don't walk in a certain way. This is, uh, this is what we call the, the upward calling, you know, what Paul called the upward calling in Christ Jesus. And we put pressure on one another to, to move upward, ever upward. And we live not for fleshly gratification, and it involves self, fleshly self-denial. And if we have the Spirit of God in us, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so we're constantly asking ourselves, am I, do I have the fruit of the Spirit? Am I loving? Am I joyous? Am I peaceful? Am I patient? And if we're not, we're putting pressure, upward pressure on ourselves to become the things that we're not so that we don't grieve the spirit who's in us. We put on the spiritual armor to fight in a battle we can't even see. God's spirit in us, in fact, not as a metaphor, and I tried to prove that to you as I've had to prove it to myself. Um, I used to be in that camp probably who said the Holy Spirit only dwells in us through the word. And I'm not even sure why I said that except that that's what everybody else was saying. Um, because when I began reading the scriptures with a critical eye, <clears throat> I began to see that that would be quite impossible to read all the way through Romans chapter 8 and see it that way. Um, quite literally, uh, would be difficult to read a, a great many other passages throughout the New Testament and see it that way. 
Uh, it's not as a metaphor or by proxy or by agency, but the Spirit is in us in fact. Um, I'm not asking everybody who's here today to walk away with me today having agreed to that 100%. If, if you don't see it that way yet, don't worry, you will. <laughs> um, I have prepared a document that I have here. I, I didn't make enough for everybody because I don't want everybody to take it. <laughs> um, I want you to take it if, if you want more about that. <clears throat> If you'd like to read uh, my view about this in a fair amount of detail, probably too much detail, as I tend to be a little overly detailed sometimes. Um, there's a, as much in the footnotes as there is in the document. <laughs> um, but uh, it talks about uh, the, the summary. It's a summary statement on the indwelling of the Spirit through the Word. And I just offer that for anybody who really wants to take another look. Um, and for anyone who would like to shore up what they believe about that. And if these all go away, I'll make some more. Um, but I only made 20 of them, and there are like 50 people in here. So take it if you really want it. I'm not, I, I'm not trying to, what, you know, you've noticed, I'm not trying to engage anybody in arguments in this class. And I'm not trying to be an arguer. I, I'm not a debater. I, I used to enjoy that when I was younger. I don't anymore. Um, but... If, if I could convince you, this is something that I think I would like to convince you about. <clears throat> God is with us. That means that God is with us in a personal and intimate way. Um, and it means that we are his temple, not holding the scrolls only, but the glory. Our identity as sons, our connection with the Father, our guarantee of an inheritance and it as a transforming and sanctifying influence. His presence is at once enriching, motivating, encouraging, reassuring, and disciplining if we walk by faith if we walk with our minds set on things, things of the Spirit. He does not act in conflict with his own words, but in accordance with them. And that brings us to Romans chapter 8 and that handout you have in front of you. discuss because after I do this we'll have about 10 more minutes for you all to share whatever comments you want to share okay there is therefore now no condemnation and you know those are thoughts that are carried over from chapter 7 for those who are in Christ Jesus and some versions will continue who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. <clears throat> 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the, mind, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And you can see I'm putting up on the overhead here what's on that other slide you have in your hands because you probably can't see it from the back here. I think the, the writing gets pretty small. Um, but this spirit in us implies ownership. It implies that, he, that we belong to him. God has put his mark of belonging, his mark of ownership upon us. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So the spirit is life when sin has killed us. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So new life is given through the Holy Spirit. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, do you notice that? It's by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So we, this implies that we are sons if we're led by him. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, a spirit that is an evidence of adoption by God, by whom we cry, Dear Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And his presence makes us joint heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is, offered, that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits in, with eager longing for the re revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was sub subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, <coughs> in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth <coughs> until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who, are the, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. If we have him, the first fruits, we await the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for, <clears throat> for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he just, whom he justified, he also glorified. <coughs> what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That to me is so much more meaningful after a class like this. So rich with meaning. Now, what would you like to say? <laughs> <laughs> Gloria. Well, I was, I was in a lady's Bible study a number of years ago. We were studying the book of Romans, and there was a woman in the class who shared with us that at some point she'd had a, they had had a preacher who was blind. And so he carried the, a Braille set of the Bible with him, which was obviously pretty cumbersome. And so we started memorizing many parts of the Bible. And the point he made to their congregation was that if there was only one chapter in the Bible for you to memorize, it would be Romans chapter 8. That's very significant. That. Yeah. yeah. If you're going to memorize a chapter in the Bible, this is the one you should start with. <clears throat> so encouraging. So enriching. Well, yes, sir. I like the way that Paul dealt with hope in this because, you know, so many times when you're talking with people, conversation comes up. They say, well, I hope I make it to heaven. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't read Romans 8.1. Yeah. You know, because it said if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. So that answers their question right there. Well, you know, I, I, I thought a lot about that, and I think it really comes back to this old paradigm that we talked about early on where you're in and you're out, and you're in and you're out, and your relationship with God is always really tenuous. You're sort of hanging by a brittle thread above hell, and waiting for the cord to snap and that, that God is kind of the policeman behind the billboard waiting for a speeder to come by so he can, you know, nail him. Um, this view of God and this view of our tenuous relationship with God is a source of all kinds of problems. And I think this is one of them. 
And I think it's the reason for people being terrified on their deathbed because they don't know if they were good enough. And they'll even say that to you. And I say to them, are you kidding me? Good enough? <laughs> Who's good enough? That's a, that's a real problem. Yeah, um, and I find it to be uh, a, a, a great problem in the generation, uh, probably your generation, Bob, more so than in mine and even more in mine than in the generation below mine. I, I don't really quite see that. It's not that it doesn't exist among younger people. Believe me, I know that it does, and I've seen it. I've talked to some people who, who sort of have this view of things. Um, there, there are some psychological conditions that have been named after this sort of view, uh, this, this living in terror of doing something wrong because of your... And, and, and so what a lot of psychologists have been taught to do is tell people, well, you need to stop being religious. It's this religion that's killing you. Well, no, it's not the religion that's killing you. It's the wrong view of God that's killing you. If you see God as being all-powerful and looking to get you, you know he's going to get you. If you view your relationship with God as being so tenuous, um, of course you're going to be terrified on your deathbed. I hope I don't approach death that way, and I hope that none of you all will because of uh, a a better understanding of the kind of relationship we have with our loving Father in Heaven who wants to do everything He can to keep us in His fold. We Thank need you. to have the attitude that uh, my son Ken had when he found out that he had cancer and that it wasn't curable. He said, I don't know what's going to happen, Dad, but he said, I'm ready. Yeah, he was. That's the kind of attitude we need to have yeah. towards God. Yeah. We're ready. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't because Ken thought he was so great, was it? Yeah. Because he thought he thought God was great. Yeah. I have a story about my five-year-old son, my oldest son. I was in a small congregation, probably 20 people. At five years of age, he came to him and he said, Dad, why doesn't Ernie sing? This is the contrast between the physical and the fleshly, and the spiritual. And he was wondering. He hadn't observed Ernie, an older man, singing. I said, well, I really don't know, Warren. He said, well, we're supposed to sing, and he's not singing. He just insisted on knowing why. I said, well, maybe you need to go ask Ernie. Well, he did. <laughs> and uh, Ernie came to me later, and he said, boy, you talk about being embarrassed. He said, you really embarrassed me. And he said, uh, I have to tell you why I don't open my mouth. He said, I've been told for many years I can't sing. I need to keep my mouth shut. So he said, I just, uh, I think the words while we're, while we're singing. I said, Ernie, you're on track. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's what the Lord wants out of you. Now, it's the only time we open our mouth is like Paul says, to teach and admonish one another. But from our heart, we sing praises to God. 
That's a distinction that we don't make, I think is paramount with the study we just had. From a spiritual standpoint, we do that from the heart. We, block, we honor God, but we speak to one another, we teach one another when we open our mouths. But I, that's really come home to me <laughs> in recent years as I think back on that example. He, he, was, he was doing everything the Lord expected of him between he and the Lord. He just wasn't admonishing his brethren, teaching his brethren when he opened his mouth because he was told he couldn't sing. And it's just not true. It doesn't matter how we sound when we open our mouth. We're still, Paul says, to teach and admonish one another. Period. Not sing to one another. Teach and admonish one another. Teach and admonish one another in song. <laughs> Psalms, yeah. That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know how to sort all that out for for Ernie or for Warren. I'm sure Warren figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but through the eyes of a child, you know that. Um, I've had kids come to me and talk to me about one thing or another as a matter of conscience. And you, work, you, you, you talk with kids about it, it opens their mind and also opens yours, doesn't it? Thank but you I, for that. I think we have that, that thought that when I open my mouth, it needs to sound good. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's our problem with, with music today. That's been my failing for years. Now, I like good sound. Nope, don't misunderstand me. But when we teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it's verbalizing words that are supposed to be edifying and encouraging. It's not for the entertainment value. That's right. And I think that's one, one real strong selling point for what we do here. Um, you, I visit a lot of different kinds of churches over the years, and they're really, you, you can divide them into two kinds. There are the kinds that are participative, and there are the kinds that are sort of spectator uh, activities. And uh, I like the fact that we're participative. I think that's what God intended for us to be, and that's why he said, teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Because when we participate, that's, we are doing that. Um, not everybody's listening all the time. Not everybody's paying attention. Not everybody's connected. But when we pay attention, when we're connected, and we think about what's happening around us, we, we'll be admonished by that. Yeah, Kim. Uh, I just just wanted to say that over the years with my smugness of thinking that I'm somebody because I'm in the Church of Christ, I've learned that as I observe other people <coughs> from other, excuse me, <coughs> from other churches and denominations as ourselves, it's really, it's really heartening. It's really good to see that God knows who's are his. And when I see people of other backgrounds with the Holy Spirit, and I don't even have to ask them where they go to church, and I can see the fruit of the Spirit coming with it from within them, and I can see how they receive people, and I can tell who they are by their love, like Jesus said, I feel very connected to those people spiritually as well, because I can see the Holy Spirit through others as well, and not just us. We have a tendency to, to judge people, other people from ground level, don't we? 
from what I see. And, and so what I see oftentimes is what's the name on the building that they meet in? What are the seri series of things that they do when they're in that building? Um, now, imagine, and we're not God, we'll never be God, and it's dangerous to even think that we can think like God. But if we're up here looking down and we're seeing this group of people that seems to be doing all the right things, whatever that is, um, and we had, see this group that maybe they got some of it wrong. Okay, is there a group that does all the right things that doesn't have anything wrong? Okay, but we see this group over here, maybe they're doing some things wrong. And yet we see the spirit of Christ in these people. We see the love of Christ. We, that this is the way that Jesus said we would know that his disciples would be known by the love that they had for one another. Um, and so when you're looking at it from vertical uh, position, looking down, that picture looks different, doesn't it? So I would encourage us to think more about not thinking of things the way we tend to think them, think about them as human beings who are involved in all the argumentation and debates that separate people and think about things more from God's point of view about what God values, what he has openly said that he values, what he has written that he values, as opposed to the sorts of things that we tend to value and place the most emphasis on. I think that's a worthwhile encouragement for all of us. Thank you. All right, um, I've got to be up front in just a few minutes, so I'm going to go ahead and cut the other. Thank you all so much for participating and for being here. Thank you.